what do you think skills that matter going forward for your children? I think being relevant in uh-huh. today's technology. I mean, you never stop learning. That's my lesson to them. I mean, I would say to myself, uh, all I learned in university, we had to look things up in books. Use only 2% of what you learn, seriously. Yeah. It's a nice, nice uh, four-year paid holiday by your parents. <laughs> so you learn other social skills like, you know, um, getting, going out for drinks with your friends or, you know, seeing the world and doing all that stuff. And but meeting you know, girls as well, right? Meeting of girls. Right. The, the important thing is that, you know, you learn social skills. And don't forget, social skills are a very important part of life now. Mm. You know, people with good EQ get ahead of any, anyone else. Um, being liked by a bigger crowd of people gets yourself promoted because that's the kind of persons companies seek out, you know, influences and people who can sort of shape decision-making. Yeah. Yes, men are definitely out of the way. So I always yeah. teach my son, you know, to, to keep on learning. Uh, never stop learning. Before we begin the podcast, have you gotten your free ebook? It's called the Build a Six-Figure Portfolio Guidebook. Now, inside it, we share with you the tips and tricks to bring your stock investing skills to the next level. The best part, it's only 10 pages long and it's totally free. Whether you're on Spotify or YouTube, the link to download is in the description or you can go to www.firl.co slash F-R-E-E or www.firal.co slash free. Good day, good day, everyone, and welcome back to the Firal Podcast. MJ, how are welcome, you today? Welcome. Well, we are, as we record this, uh, you know, we are on the verge of having a new prime minister. Oh, yeah. Right? That's very interesting news. But, you know, the prime minister is not as special as our guest today. Oh, from definitely. my point of view, at least. Exactly. <laughs> I'm not too <laughs> sure. At least one, one thing I know that this podcast will go down in history. Oh, yeah. <laughs> definitely. Have a new prime minister. Okay. Yes. <laughs> just an just interesting fact for you too, Dato Stewart. Uh, MJ and I, we left our pre- we, we tendered our resignations at our previous company on the same day uh, Tun Mahade actually resigned. So we will yeah. remember that day also. All right. Yeah, we were earlier. We were early. You know, he copied us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he copied us. <laughs> so on our guest on our podcast today, um, I consider him a, a friend. Uh, I've been on stage with him many times and I've even followed him way before he, I was even had the privilege to share a stage with him. Uh, welcome, Dr. Stuart LeBroy. <laughs> thank you, John. And thank you, MJ, for, welcome, for the welcome. opportunity to speak on your, on your new uh, platform. It's interesting. It's I've been following you quite quite religiously since I learned about it. Um, and I think it's a great idea. People yeah. need investment advice. I think it's something that's so important. I mean, everyone's a, a novice. In fact, to myself, I keep telling you, I want to come and do a course with you guys because I'm not that good at investing. I'm quite lazy. You know, <laughs> That's why I tend to keep all my money and read more or less because you want to get the dividends and then lock the stock and forget about it. It works yeah. very well like that. I can't be bothered following stocks and all the you know nuances that go with the bad announcements, bad press, good press, hard to track them. And I don't chase stocks either as a rule. Good. I mean, that fantastic golden words for a lot of uh, listeners out there as well. Don't chase, <laughs> don't chase oh. the fats. You know? <laughs> oh, never chase the fat. Yeah. So maybe I just want to introduce a little bit of Dr. Stewart and I'm going to tease him out for a better introduction. So uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Dr. Stewart LeBroy is a legend. Uh, in my view, uh, in the REITs industry. 
Um, I followed him ever since he was in Axis. So maybe I want to go a little bit before that, Dato Stewart. What was a 15-year-old Stewart LeBroy like? <laughs> oh, tell you the truth, I was actually finishing my school. I was quite fortunate that I, when I started school, I got double promoted. So I finished my O-levels when I was 15. Wow. And so I, had a, I took a gap year when I finished. I went to do my Form 6 mm-hmm. and I left to go to the U.S. for a year. I see. So, you know, just imagine 1967, okay? They weren't jumbo planes, okay? My route to the U.S. was quite torturous. I had to really <laughs> fly to Manila first, and then we had an orientation. Then we flew to Hawaii, because that's as far as the plane could go. And wow. then we got off there, and all of us had to carry x-rays of ourselves. Huh? And in order to get through immigration, they had to put your x-ray out to make sure you have got tuberculosis, some other horrible tropical disease. And when they sort of said, yeah, you're okay, pal. So then they allowed you in the country. Then from Hawaii, we took a plane to uh, San Francisco, where we spent uh, a week on the Stanford campus, which was actually wonderful. Can you imagine? This, this is 16, 17-year-old me, okay? Wow. Right. Never been out of Malaysia, never been on a plane before. The real Kampong boy, getting out there right in the middle of the US, which was really at, at the forefront of everything, you know, uh, Vietnam was going on. We had the whole hippie movement starting. Um, we were two years away from Woodstock. You know, it was a, a decade of where everything was going on. And the day I landed in Manila, Sgt. Pepper's album came out. Wow. <laughs> it was that far back. And, that, and the things, these things really stick with you. And the one year I spent in the U.S. was very transformational for me. Why was that? Why was that? Hmm. I met why girls. was it transformational? I met you? girls. Oh, <laughs> I was in a damn all-boys school all my life, okay? <laughs> what do you think it was all about? No, actually, no. You know, the, the teaching that I found in the U.S., in those days, the schools were very, very good. And, you know, mm-hmm. in Malaysia, the old system of learning on rote, you know, memorize and then exams, you just remember what you've read in the book and just copy it out. Nothing like that in the States. It was all about application and discovery. And oh, so God. I rewired my brain and came back. And I never studied hard after that. Everything was easy. And that was a wonderful part. I came back and then I went on to go to UK for my, my university and um, fell in love, met my wife and came home. And then I started working as an engineer for 20, slogged out for 20 years. Um, very, also very transformative because uh, I learned a lot about industry there mm. because I was actually building stuff. Yeah. And the funny thing was, you know, I started off as a, as an appliance, and actually built refrigerators and air conditioners. And later on in life, I went on to build gas cookers. I built most of the white goods and um, had a great kick out of it because I was actually designing a lot of the stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about the applications of innovation. I came in when I had a stint with Keywatt Industries and I joined the company. It was, remember Zanussi as a brand? Yes. Some of you might remember it, okay? Yeah, it really I, I don't know whether MJ knows this. It's like ovens. They, yeah, they make ovens and make appliances. Italian company, okay? Um, two perks of doing that was once we, uh, one, one thing was I got to go to Italy once a year, okay, and enjoy the pasta and the wonderful things that go on with that. The other thing was, you know, I got to, they, allow, they allowed me to do what I liked. So I looked at the Italian gas cooker, and all the burners are very small. And you know, Asian cooking, that doesn't work, right? So got the engineering team together, say, hey guys, got to rip this stupid burner out there and put a nice big wok burner in its place. And we did that. Our sales went up 400%. Okay, so from a 30% market share, I went to 80% market share. So 
I learned a lot of lessons about being innovative in the things we do and the need for constant change in a business in order to keep yourself relevant. So after I finished with the appliance side, I went on to run a paint company. And after that, I got involved in real estate. Mm. Uh, what, what a story. I mean, I because I, I was reading through your LinkedIn uh, profile, I, I didn't know this part about Zanussi because... I remember when I was a kid and those were the most expensive appliances being sold at any... <laughs> but they were good. They were, they're really well built and, and you know, we yeah. did a good job doing that. And it was all Malaysian designs and a bunch of Malaysian guys doing it. And the Italians came to learn from us. As wow. It happened. So it was kind of cool. But yeah, uh, yeah uh, my involvement in real estate started in 95. After I left uh, my Kiwat, when I had my Kiwat experience, um, the person who was actually supplying the paints to Kiwat was a Norwegian. Okay. A very good friend of mine, Carl Mirror. And he said, I need somebody to come and run my paint company for me because I want to go into real estate. So I was pulled over there to run the company. And uh, then he said, I'll give you five years, make me enough money so I can sell it for good profit and then come and join me in real estate. And I did that. And I joined in 95 and we started the, Ax- the, uh, the his, his own company. We started the Axis Group. Mm. It started basically as development for industrial estates. The mm-hmm. first really crack at an industrial estate was one in, in Shalom. In uh, uh, was it um, section? I can't remember section it was. Sri Muda there, that part of it. So okay. and then it was uh, the uh, Axis Industrial uh, Industrial Estate, and it was my first experience in actually building out something like that. It's fascinated with the process. Mm. Then of course we started building big buildings for rent, and that was the basic thesis behind it. So the, the group actually had a number of properties which we built out for rent. Because the business model was high leverage. Okay. And uh, little equity, a lot of borrowings, build it out, and then flip it. However, 98 came along in the middle of our great ambition, and everything came crashing down. And when you live through a recession like that, you really understand how brutal the capital markets can be. Oh, yeah. Okay. i never forget sitting in my office, and a call came from the banks telling us that our interest rate, because we are floating, went from 6% to 22%. I don't think any of you have been to that shop before, right? One day. Oh, wow. And then Mahate fortunately stepped in and then pegged the dollar and everything calmed down. But we still, the, the, the entire financial and property business is in, in tatters. You know, Maybank, Maybank was selling at 250 a share. Wow. And no one had money to buy. That was the problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it, was, it, was a, it was a steal, you know. Don't forget, they went on and did a number of bonus issues and all that. Correct, correct, and correct. If you bought a 250, you'd be making about a 10 to 50, 20, 20 times multiple on your initial investment. Yeah. The dividends you gained from, from, from doing that. But uh, yeah, then we struggled and struggled and struggled. And then we pulled through. Um, and then came 2001. We managed to get enough funding to build Manara Access, which was our flagship mm. building in PJ. And when that finished in 2003, uh, we managed to lease out most of it okay? mm-hmm. because post, uh, post the crash, a lot of demand came into the market and we managed to fill up all our buildings. But then we had a big bank debt hanging on our, our, our necks and we had to get rid of it. So I put forward the plan to the, the rest of the company to say that we should look at REITs uh, because at that time it was called listed property trusts. The REIT regulation mm-hmm. had not come out yet, but we knew that the SC was looking at it. So we started, started working on it. And so being pioneers, you have to go through all the pain. We put our first papers in on the first initial draft regulations. We had to pull them back because they changed the rules. And we Ooh. put the next prospectus in, we had to pull it back again because they changed the rules again. 
because it was actually making up as went along. Um, the first thing he said, they said that all properties they're going to read must have uh, leases longer than 60 years. And that was not available in PGA at all around 55 years. So that was a no-no. So we had to get that taken off the table. And then any property being injected can't have any debt. Okay, real estate doesn't work without debt. So that had to be taken off the table. So all these little hurdles we had to go through and it took us 18 months to arrive at August the 3rd, 2005, when we finally managed to list. And was Axis Street the first listed? It was the first list read. Oh my, okay. I didn't know that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so oh, much for that. History first list, uh, because uh, in August 2005, when we listed, it was... Um, an amazing day because we went into the market. We, in fact, I'll be fair to uh, my, my business partners. We took the view that we had to leave some change on the table for the investors. Mm -hmm. They gave a discount to market on the valuation of up to 40 million on a 300 million portfolio. Okay. Wow. Unprecedented. We have a big discount to market and um, priced our units at uh, was $1.25. Okay. Um, opening bell, one sixty seven. We were 19 times oversubscribed and a lot of very unhappy investors. We couldn't actually give them the allocations, yeah. but uh, we never looked back since then. Um, it's, been, it's been an incredible journey because at the time we were actually building out the portfolios, a lot of stuff was coming onto the market mm. because the post, uh, post the crash, there were a lot of people looking to do sale and specs, get their cash flow up and running. Mm. So we tapped in that rich vein of, of asset allocations and built out our portfolio fairly quickly with some really good stuff. It still is actually on the books today. I see. I see. I mean, back then, I, I cannot imagine, I mean, looking at the REITs markets today versus back then is, is almost like the Wild West, you know, you, based oh, yeah. on your story. Yeah, you're making rules as you go along, right? Oh, yeah. This SC was changing the rules. We were making any rules up. Yeah. That came later when we set up the, uh, the uh, REIT Managers Association back in 2010. Yeah. And we soon realized that if we don't get together, we won't have a common voice. Um, the Securities Commission would not speak to us alone, individually. They needed to talk to a, a body. So we formed ourselves up. And we were like seven, eight years ahead of Singapore. Yeah. Uh, it was a very successful uh, coming together of all the management of all the REIT companies. And today we're all very, very good friends. Uh, it works as a wonderful community and uh, delight working with all of them. They're all pretty good at their jobs. I mean, I would say, Finding REIT managers or CEOs of REIT managers are finding chicken's teeth, okay? They don't exist in the market, tell you the truth. It's a skill set that is not readily available. And uh, that's why they don't, they don't move much. Um, you know, they, they tend to sort of, they grow into their jobs and they learn it very well. And we all help each other along. But we've actually managed to get a lot of changes done on the regulatory side through the, the MRMA. Yeah. Uh, the we call it Mr. Ma, by the way. Mr. Ma. <laughs> It's become our acronym for it, Mr. Ma. <laughs> I, I wonder why they're calling it a Mr. Ma to me. Oh, Mr. Ma, MRMA. Okay, got it. Uh, we've gone out to run very successful events in Malaysia. Uh, we cooperate very closely with APRI and Singapore. Um, and I think the, by and large, I think that all the REITs in Malaysia are very well managed. Kudos to all of them. But the market is shifting. You know, and I think that everyone in the business is now going to start shifting gears to see whether they can actually capitalize on the opportunities or reinvent the ways to do business. Yeah, yeah. MJ, I'm pretty sure you have a question. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm really interested to learn about this 
uh, shift that you're talking about. But before that, uh, if you can dial back to when this, when the, the concept of a REIT became a lot more concrete in the country, why, what gave you and your team that confidence to go for, to be a pioneer, to take on that sort of risk? It wasn't really a risk. We had the banks chasing us for money. <laughs> we, had to get, we had to basically float our debt in the market some way or the other. And the first things we looked at, well, let's go and buy a property company and put our assets into that. And those days, these property companies came with $900 million worth of losses. And some clever guy trying to tell me how they can restructure and make it disappear, which they do all the time, okay? And uh, all that nonsense. So that was not getting any traction with my shareholders, that's for sure. And it got tossed it out the window very quickly. So the, the actually listed property trusts were in Malaysia since the 90s. But they never took off. And they're trading at 50 cents to the dollar in terms of valuation. So the SC saw what's happening in Singapore. I must thank Singapore for making Malaysian REITs happen. Because mm. uh, interesting story, when they started off, they were not successful. In fact, the first REIT they listed was uh, Capital Malls. Ah. They had to pull the listing and reprice it again. No one knows about these things, but they had to pull the listing and reprice it. And they went back to market and then they make it happen. Wow. And it's followed very quickly with the senders. They were number two. And because the senders was the industrial week, they became our, our mentor or our model we wanted to follow because we had no base. You know, it's like make it up as it goes along. You know, we didn't know how to really run a week and they were quite well structured because they had a lot of experience. So I spoke, rang up the CEO and said, can I come and see you? And it was very kind, you know. I will say, give them credit. They said, come on down and we'll show you what we do. And I did. And so we went on to, to, um, to learn how they did it. They basically gave me the full tour on how they managed their, their REIT. And we came back and we followed what they did very, very closely. And we actually had a mirror of Ascenders REIT in Singapore. Wow. So they were a great, a great mentor and a great uh, uh, model to follow. And that was partly anchored in our success. We had a very good base to work from. And that was uh, the main reason why we started the REITs. Mm. Great. Um, back then, when when I mean, you gave I, I'm loving this already. You you giving us a history of what a lot of people don't read about in the no, it was never written up. <laughs> exactly, exactly, and I, that's why I'm loving it. Um, what were the early struggles of any of these replays? I mean, this is way before you you had Mr. Ma, right? I mean, right. you had independent voices, and. What was going, what were the main challenges of these individual REIT players, if you were to, you know, I, I know you guys were very focused into industrial because you follow yeah. Ascenders, but what about the other guys who were like uh, uh, in retail spaces or those guys in, um, you know, we've seen even now hospitality and also uh, hospitals. What, what were the, in, collectively, what were the common challenges and collectively, what were the individual challenges of each different niche? Of the you see, many of the REITs that came after us, we were also sponsored. We, we, we put our assets in to begin with. But after that, we very quickly bought outside the system. You know what I mean? We didn't have our own assets to, to inject in. So okay. our pipeline came from the market. And uh, thankfully, there was enough good quality assets for us to do that. Mm -hmm. um, people like YTL, they had their whole portfolio of, you know, Lot 10 and the entire sort of uh, uh, shopping malls and the, the hotels and everything like that. Very big. They're much larger than us. And uh, he, was, he came after us. And uh, the thing was that I, I think he wasn't very happy with the fact that we beat them to it. But when they did list, they said, uh, we may have been second, but we are the biggest. 
<laughs> Fair enough. We're not arguing with that. Okay. So we all went our own ways and did what we did, you know. Um, they found success because they had a lot of assets on their books, which they could put in over time. Um, I can't remember the third one who came on board was, I've got to really work on the history of that. Yeah. But, uh, you know, there was not that many in the first five years. It started to pick up after the Asian financial crisis. Um, That's when people like Sunway, uh, Pavilion, all the others came on board with very large offerings. KLCC was a very interesting one because it was the first hybrid structure ever done. You know, it was like a, a staple read. Yep. And no one's copied them since. I see. Why is that? Why is that so? I mean, they're very unique, yes, but why? Because why? They, listed, they listed first and they had to convert to being a read. So mm. the existing structures that were in there, they couldn't actually divorce the manager out of it. It was being I internally see. managed. So when they listed it, the internal management stayed. And that's the basic definition of a stable REIT, which means the manager is part and parcel of the REIT. So what happens there is that the, the management fees get captured within the, the company, don't leak out to a third party. So they do tend to improve their returns to shareholders in that respect. I see, I see. Okay. So if you go to America, they will not touch externally managed REITs. They hate them. Huh. They're all internally managed. I see. Because they say there's more, there's more alignment between the management and the shareholders in that respect. Okay, okay. And the Asian models are very much um, the Australian model LPTs with external management. Although that's changing now. And more people are moving towards this model. Japan being, there's no trust structure in Japan, so they had to go for corporate REITs. If the Philippines have done it, they'll go to do corporate REITs because they have no trust structure in their countries. And it'll take too long to set it up. Those Commonwealth countries with trust structures put this thing into place because we had a trustee that held the assets on behalf of the unit holders and an independent manager to run it. I see. I see. It's very similar to that of a unit trust structure in a way because you have the trust. In a way. And so we had trouble when we first started to tell you another story about how we actually managed to sell this thing. Mm-hmm. Was um, when I went to talk to a thousand people in, in the in Sunway Convention Center, the big insurance boys all got together for a conference. They wanted to learn about REITs. Mm-hmm. So I stood up there. We'd been just there for some time, okay, maybe up a year or so. And uh, I think YTL was also in, in play by then. They listened that December that year. And I asked everyone in the audience, how many of you are invested in REITs? Four hands went up. <laughs> we had no traction with the investing public. None. Oh, gosh. They didn't know who we held, what the hell it was. And then we realized, hey, guys, we've got to do an education. You, to, you know, we've got to educate the public. So all of us got together in the REIT market. There were about six, six managers at the time, or seven managers who were actually listed. So we all got together. This was basically the precursor of the MRMA. We all decided to get together and do roadshows. So we all pile in and go to Johor and get all the, uh, the remises there to invite all their clients into a big hall and uh, do a presentation of all the different REITs. But it was like an investor roadshow. So we had all these things. We went to all these down Ipo, we went to TJ, we went to Penang, you know, wherever we could find a market. In fact, we also went to, East, went to Sarawak to do this as well in Kuching. But at the same time, we had a great great fun partying after these events were over and we got to know each other very, very well. So it was a wonderful social, social, social aspect to be part of, the, part of this industry. And uh, we got to, got to meet everybody in the business and we exchanged a lot of experiences and we learned a lot from each other. Very fun. So it's been it a fun Sounds like a Woodstock wood concert, you know, Dr. Stewart. Not quite. Sounds but. <laughs> but anyway. That's fun. It's like a convention. Every time it was a convention, we did that. But you know, the, the bursar was very grateful because we're helping promote the, the asset class. And eventually, because in my slides, I will also explain to you, we're not a unit trust. There's a big difference between us and unit trusts. 
We give dividends and we give money to you, you know, yeah. four times a year. Unit trusts give you nothing. They give you units at the end of it, which you can't cash in. So unless you sell the stock, you can't get your money. So right. it basically gives you a chance to, to earn a lot out of the, out of the, out of the product. Yeah, great. I, 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 no, I mean, I wholeheartedly agree with what you say because the other thing is the tangibility of the assets that you hold. I mean, when I first started investing, that was what allured me to REITs. Yeah. And uh, that's how I kind of stumbled upon you and uh, you were going on this, uh, <laughs> you were going on this, uh, how would I say, uh, uh, this baptism of uh, <laughs> trying to... <laughs> yeah, it was the hardest thing was getting the message across. But now I think you find that, you know, uh, even in access in one year, we had, to, we had to keep at least a thousand shareholders on our books. Mm. And because we had such a few uh, inst- uh, sort of public shareholding uh, inside our books, we had to get our staff to buy 100 units each to get the register up to 1,000. We gave them the 100 units and please go and register as a shareholder. <laughs> the thing cost as much, you know, it was about 120 bucks each. So yeah. part of their bonus was free shares in access. <laughs> so you'll be registered shareholders. But now they have about 9,000. And it's really grown. The 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 uh, mom and pops are p- piled into the asset class quite considerably, yeah. and it's yes. giving better price discovery. If you know what I mean, uh, right. the stock uh, people yeah. sort of put their money where they feel safest. I think now a lot of people take it as a defensive stock, and uh, I think they like the the, the the characteristics of capital gain and cash. That's right. That's regular right. cash. That's right. A regular payout. You know, it's like uh, I'm getting my, especially for retirees, I'm getting my salary every three months or something. Exactly. You're going to check in the mail. So, yeah. And you can almost predict what it's going to be. Yeah. You know, and you know what you're going to be getting. And tax them 10%. So, so it does really work in that respect. Better than FDs. Much right. better than FDs. Great. Um, so, I'm going to go to Mr. Ma right now. Okay. <laughs> uh, when you started Mr. Ma, do you... Was there a lot of resistance when you, I'm, I'm guessing you pioneered the idea, started the initiative. Uh, were the read managers or these individual read managers, were they very hesitant or very supportive of that? In the, in the beginning, well, they were because it... they all were having individual problems trying to get things across with the SC. The SC wouldn't have entertained a lot of their inquiries. You know, they were forcing us really to do this, but uh, in a very subtle way. And they were right because, you know, industry speaks with one voice and it's far more powerful. Because you know, if they entertain one, they entertain another. So it becomes picking and choosing. They would not take sides. So if someone got an advantage, then we had a problem. And then uh, moving on from there. So part and parcel of it, the industry had some basic issues, especially with managing the assets. You know, they had this crazy rule still exists and probably I'll get murdered by the real estate industry for saying this, but I don't care. Um, the, the fact is that, you know, you need to have a registered valuer to manage your assets. And you have to engage them independently to do this for you. Now, all of us have been managing our own assets very successfully, and we listed the random for a while. But then the ruling came is you need a registered value to be registered as the manager of your assets. And the funny part about this is that a valuer, a two-man valuation company from EPO, is qualified to run KLCC. And that is the, the basic, uh, basic nonsense. Excuse me. I've got to shut this door. My dogs are going crazy. Okay, no worries. You have to edit that out, I guess. No worries. No, I think the no, dogs are pretty humorous. <laughs> getting your attention. No, but that was one of the one of the big big uh, big bones of contention we had, because it didn't make any sense to any of us. It was basically a rule that started off with the condominium industry, 
you know, they're forcing them, they, they must have professional management in condominiums, you know, because otherwise the, uh, the joint management corporations didn't know nuts about running buildings. So they had to get a professional to run it. Which is fair enough, fair call. But when you apply it to, comp to big complex things like shopping malls, where the management who runs it needs to do all the necessary things about promotions and everything else, it doesn't work. Yeah. But they still have it today. So what they have is basically a, a, a convenience. They, they employ the, the valuer, they pay him his fees, stay away. I'll do it myself. And it goes on. So there's not much engagement from that respect. So I think a lot of the time we find that, you know, we're trying to get that lifted. That's been one of the main bones of contention with the, with the MRMA. We've been mm. fighting hard with the Ministry of Finance to raise this. But the Ministry of Finance runs the valuations, the Board of Valuations. And they basically, they basically is a gazetted law, so we can't change it unless we are given a grant of an exemption, which they can grant. No fear, the, the exemptions are quite clever, okay? Hospitals can do it. And when they right. had, a, when they had a, a, rubber, a, a palm oil estate REIT, remember, they had Bowstead plantations as a REIT, they could manage it themselves. If they managed a the hospital and people died, they would get the, their, their asses sued, okay? Yep, yep. That's right, that's right. <laughs> so, no, this is a bit too difficult for me to manage. So, okay, exemption given. So it was very, very, you know, pick and choose. I see. Because there was really no, no uh, uh, level playing field in the way they made decisions. I think it's not really good for the industry. Mm -hmm. So we're still, we're still working on it. It's a work in progress. I see. But we mentioned a lot of other things. I mean, say the SC and, and Bursa Malaysia have been wonderfully supportive. They're very engaged with us. They, we have sessions with them regularly. And for instance, this, the, when the pandemic hit and uh, malls were forced to shut, we, we noticed that a few of our members, gearing levels were quite high to very close to the 50% level. Okay. We wrote into the SC and says, can you give us a two-year moratorium allowing us to lift the debt levels to 60% if they cross mm -hmm. over 50? Because if mm -hmm. they cross over 50, they're forced to fire sale their assets. I see. Oh down. gosh. So to prevent that, they very quickly responded with a change in the rules. And that's give them credit for that. You know, these things you don't really hear in the market. These could be quiet changes that go on behind the scenes. Yes, very, very important. Well, that that was great insight. I mean, I didn't even thought about that. I was thinking, oh yeah, it's it's almost like a margin call, right? That because it's it like the moment you call. Yeah. <laughs> you go over yeah. here, you're basically margin call. So we tried to avoid that. And a lot of a lot of the beats were very grateful that they had that breathing space. So you can get their get their, their portfolios um, together, really, so to speak, and uh, move on from that. But it's been a, it's, the the MRMA is thriving, and recently, you know, we, we had a meeting together with the pandemic, and we managed to raise some money from some of our um, our uh, events. Okay. We all decided to put hundred thousand dollars aside to support the white flag campaign. Mm, great. So we picked uh, ten aduns. And he gave them each $10,000 worth of Speedmart 99 coupons to go and distribute amongst their constituents. The ones who are poor, that have difficulty paying for their food and stuff. So obviously, you know, things that we do in CSR, we don't make a big deal about it, but yeah. we're happy to sort of help out. Great, great. MG? Yeah, I, I'm just curious. Uh, you mentioned a few members in the, in, 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 in the association, but... Um, was Axis Read one of them? I'm just curious. And if not, why why didn't it fall into the same kind of pressures during COVID? Which one? I mean the performance. 
Yes, yes. Like not like were they were they one of them who you had to, uh, you know, because you you had to write to SC to shift the rules because some of them. No, no. It was basically we 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 take a, we have basically a regulatory committee in the MRMA. So we have a very good team of people there. It wasn't for access; didn't need it. The thirty-four uh, percent gearing, the completely right, right. very very conservative gearing. But some of the REITs were running very close to to uh, the fifty percent level. And when we saw that happening, we thought we had better do something to avoid a little bit of a catastrophe. So we appealed and they responded immediately by granting us this, um, this extension. All right, right. Okay, okay. But nothing I do is really with, because I wasn't in access when it happened anyway. Okay, so, and besides the whole company, I still got a lot of affection for the company and I still keep in touch with everybody. But uh, I will say that you, know, you never spend more than 10 years running a company. You get moss growing underneath you. <laughs> and what you must try and avoid is tired ideas. Okay, or get defensive about keeping business as usual. It's very bad, very bad mantra. Yeah. Uh, when I was in Axis, we had a rule. Every year we had to do something new. Whether it was um, bringing in sukuks, uh, extending our sukuk levels, uh, trying out new uh, ways of marketing. We had something to keep the business engaged with the markets. And uh, we loved doing strange and wonderful things. It kept the mem members of the team very, very engaged. So I call the business great. unusual. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I first heard about, it's great that you brought this up because it's a good pivot to one of the questions I wanted to ask about your statement. I think it was in on BFM in 20, I can't recall the exact year, but you spoke something about how logistics of the future is going to happen or the trend going forward because I think at that point of time e-commerce isn't as I think that that was prior to Lazada Shopee I think it was just the beginning on the nascent stage of Lazada and e-commerce and you said that the problem with Malaysian real estate space especially in logistics and e-commerce is that there's no proper industrialized warehousing and you advocated for um, a change in which how these uh, smaller warehouses were built inside uh, the inner city areas uh, or what we call uh, uh, central business districts rather than having a huge warehouse, huge warehouse for the outside and then smaller distribution points um, within the city. Has that panned out according to, in a way, according Not to- yet, but it's coming. I'll tell you what's driving it, ESG. Ah. People don't realize it, but ESG is becoming a very important part of business decisions and attracting investors. Yeah. So, um, we were talking to banks recently about ESG. Yes, banks are not uh, linking ESG to loans as well. Oh, So we all better behave ourselves. So I'm looking to see whether we can get the banking industry to say, okay, if I build a, a building that's green building and it was good lead certification, whether they can get better financing terms. I mean, mm. someone's got to make the move to make it more attractive, right? So it, it, it's coming, it's coming. And I think also the fact that, you know, many of the portfolios that are in the reach, they'll say there's a, there's a change coming. A lot of portfolios uh, in in reach in the reach today are aging a little bit, ah. and when you say aging, it means that the ESG profiles aren't really the carbon footprints aren't the greatest. There'll have to be a lot of investments done to really upgrade them to a much more efficient uh, way of actually air conditioning them or dealing with them. Warehouses are great because you don't have to do anything with them. You put some solar panels on the roof, you get some water recirculation, increase the insulation on the roof. Put some high efficiency air conditioners in, LED lights, bingo, you're green. Okay. <laughs> Offices, my gosh, that's a nightmarish scenario. 
especially if it's old. I can retrofit a, a factory to be green in very record time, but otherwise it's difficult. So you find that, you know, with the whole ESG thing, people don't realize, you know, the, the environment, the social aspects and the governance aspects of, of any, any business are becoming the center stage issues for investors now. And uh, this is why I'm saying everyone's got to wake up and smell mm. the roses because it's coming and it's going to hit us harder than, than we think. And we must be prepared for it. But what, what, what choices do they have, especially like office buildings? Are they, is it cheaper to retrofit or do they really just like have to, if they really want to get green certification, ESG rating for their loans, they have to kind of like semi-demolish the building and, and build it from the ground up? What, what, I don't what think they really have to do that, but I think they should take moves to making their carbon footprint smaller. Mm. And I think that means investing in more efficient air conditioning systems. It can be done. And, you know, having more efficient lift systems, you know, clever lift systems that automatically pick floors and not them running up and down all the time. Mm -hmm. um, there's such good technology out there with building management systems that we can do things very differently. Um, we do have, you know, I, I'm currently on the board of uh, UA Magenta and they have a, a property division that's really pioneering um, very high-tech solutions for the, for the business districts mm -hmm. and building owners. And this is something that slow to get traction initially, but guess what? It's becoming mainstream now. Great, great. That's a good uh, segue into why you, as well, why do you, why do you lead? In a way, when you when you started Alpha Alpha Reads and being the chairman today, right? Um, was that the, was that somewhat to fulfill your vision of still being in industry, but at the same time still trying to ride out or, or trying to enjoy the ride of this trend or changes? Or what, what's your vision for for being in Alpha Read actually? Business unusual. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I'm going to pay the yeah. I've always taken a contrarian view in life, okay? So when you look at the standard asset classes out there, okay? Education is not unusual as an asset class. It exists a lot. It's very popular as student accommodation. Hmm. It's very prized assets because, you know, you get very long, long whales with students staying there for long periods of time. And there's always demand. So that's been popular. But schools per se starting to be starting to emerge but i'll tell you from real estate perspective i was sharing this with some friends of mine the other day you think about it which office building over 120 years old today exists in malaysia which school 120 years old exists today in malaysia my school my school thank you <laughs> yeah. school today, you know acs clanks and john's institution LaSalle, you know all of them have been around for ages and their buildings are still there Oh, yes. So when you talk about real estate with legs, schools have it. Ah, okay. okay. Yeah. So They'll never go out of style because education is, you know, such an important component of our civilization. And don't forget, when you talk about schools, you engage with it from the time you're five years old. Mm. For the first time you go to school, okay, when you finish school, you graduate, you go to university, okay, then you graduate, you get married. You have kids, guess what happens? You're taking them to school again. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and the whole cycle starts all over again, and then off you go. And then uh, they're, they're going to get married, have kids, and guess what? Grandpa's going to do some work. Mm. So until you drop dead, you engage with schools. So I never knew in a real estate class that can actually have that kind of engagement, which is something that's so unusual. Yeah. But I mean, okay. Great that you brought this up because I, I've got questions. I, I know uh, MJ went to a government school. 
Mm. Uh, so uh, both of us went to a LaSalle school. The LaSalle schools have this, how do I say this, this aura of very old architecture. But yeah. when you see when you see new schools today, like the Taylors, uh, the ISKLs or the garden schools, right? I mean, schools that can afford, uh, you know, to, to prop up their property. You don't see that kind of timeless design. Is that is that something that you feel is important? As you know, it, it, no. I think the, people change according to the times. Buildings, building architecture changes. It's never static. You can't mm -hmm. go back and build a, something that's designed hundred years ago. Never get traction. Be too yeah. expensive anyway because they built them very 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 solid back then. But I think at the end of the day, the those those schools actually have historical value, but mm -hmm. they have immense emotional attachment. Yes, to everybody. You know, so if you want to get into a school, uh, you, uh, um, an education degree, you're buying into your history, running mm. a part of history. Okay, if I can lay my hands on the on those mission schools, I'd do it in a heartbeat. <laughs> the locations in Kail are prime. You know, look at where St. John's, Heart of Kail, Limbias, right next to the uh, Medea Tower. Okay, yeah. they've all got terrific locations, and they're wonderful bits of real estate. You know, the one piece of real estate that was actually eventually sold is converted into the pavilion. Yeah. That's right. BBGS. That's right. Yes. So, you know, all those buildings had a lot of history and the alma maters are very, very important people. The, the who's who of Malaysia. Who's who of Malaysia. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, yeah. so I look at the asset class, it's very interesting. But acquiring assets is not that easy mm -hmm. because uh, schools have a different dynamic and a different sort of balance sheet. So we have to be very careful who we actually bring on board. They mm. must be, you know, um, with good growth trajectories and ability to grow their business mm -hmm. and expand. So what happens is when they sell you the, the school, they immediately take the money and build another one. Uh, and hopefully they'll sell that to me as well and then go build another one. So it has a multiply effect and hopefully we can build out a good portfolio. But it's being the education business and being today where we are, we have to start thinking a little bit more globally. Because mm. education is not just a Malaysian game. I'd love to get some Australian assets on board because people go there all the time. UK assets mm -hmm. on board. They're all great institutions. You know, so I think they all have uh, tremendous uh, possibilities to bring into a global portfolio of really, really good schools. That's what, that's the vision. Okay. Great. Great. So, I mean, how can you get there? Time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you first broached the idea with me, um, you know, this the this the probably the third or fourth time I've heard it, and I I love I still love it. <laughs> MJ and I have listened to you preach about this school before, and you know the the number that you gave us actually floored me, to be honest. MJ, I don't know if you still remember the number. One school. How much is uh, <laughs> testing your memory, MJ? Dr. Stewart said this before. <laughs> oh, no. It's testing my memory too, John. <laughs> <laughs> you, were telling, you were asking me, uh, uh, Dr. about ISKL and roughly how much will a school actually cost to develop GDB? And uh, oh, yeah, I yeah, was like, yeah. It's very expensive. It's spent a lot yeah. of money. It's about 460 to 480 million in memory serves me correctly. Something like that. You don't yeah. quote me, but I believe that was a number that has been tossed around. Yeah, yeah. So Ooh. it's quite insane to be a school, MJ. <laughs> yeah. So um, I'm going to segue into qualities of read managers. And I mean, you already gave us a precursor at the beginning of the podcast. Read managers are one, one that are very difficult to find. So what makes a good manager and how can we as investors actually tell or what are hints to know whether this manager is good? Tell you what, when we had our road shows, seriously, and we had uh, foreign companies, in fact, a lot of foreign companies bought into Access. So they came to see us. 
And they said, I don't look at your share price. I don't care what your assets are. I want to meet you. Uh -huh. They invest on the strength of the manager, not the portfolio. Because if a good manager is there, they know the portfolio will succeed. Mm. Okay. So the duty of managers really is to grow their business. That's the primary and grow it with good assets. Okay. It's not so much earning a commission when you do a purchase, but making sure you get the right purchase. Mm -hmm. And you get a purchase that whenever I bought an asset, I said, now if the tenant moves up, who can I rent it to next? So you need to have that view in mind that where we're putting into a building has got to be replaceable with someone equally good. So wherever you buy your assets, locations are very, very important. You don't go and buy a factory in the middle of nowhere and hope it's going to work for you. Because if the person moves out, I'm sorry, it'll be very hard pressed to find someone to move back in again. So mm -hmm. you've got to really cluster your decisions around very busy places with good access, good roadworks and things like that from an industrial perspective. Mm -hmm. And you need to be able to have uh, buildings that can, don't forget, industrial buildings don't last forever. So you look at what's around it, and if the town's slowly creeping at it, you know that within 20 years or 30 years' time, when you want to do something or sell it off as a commercial property, you can exit and find something else to build somewhere else. I see. But you can't do that when your property portfolios are large. When our portfolio and access reach a certain size, we made a policy of buying four and selling one every year. Um. Okay. So you get three in and get one out. And the ones we basically we're called culling the herd. Okay. The ones we sold were the ones that mature, very little growth upside, no point hanging on to it. So we sold them. At the time, they had quite a big capital gain on them. So we took the policy of returning the entire capital gain back to the shoulders. So when we did that, there was a certain amount of turbocharging we can do with the dividends. And that's good capital management. So we kept the capital we invested initially, but gave all the upside back to the shoulders. They loved it, which is fair. I said, we shouldn't keep it ourselves and say, I need to invest. No, you do your own investments through to gearing and other means. You do placements and you get the business going. But whenever there's a time to reward your, your, your investors, you do reward them. And that kind of philosophy is, is, is a good practice for managers to actually follow. I think it's, uh, it does help promote their stock to a large extent. How, how do we find out? I mean, like retail investors, I mean, institutional guys, they come in, they give you a phone call, Dr. Stewart, can I meet you for coffee, get a tour, you know? Like what uh, ascenders read actually, uh, the, the mentors that you said, extended you though but for retail investors how would they be able to gauge uh from either is it through an annual report is it through uh, attending more agms or is it through corporate actions that you know what are the sources of information would you advise uh investor potential investor for read to gauge the quality of management a quality management quality of assets you yeah. have a driver and see what you're buying into mm. don't buy a house or looking at it right you don't invest in a, in a property portfolio without looking at what they have. I mean, mm -hmm. you, know, you can't do all of them, but you can get a, a flavor of what the properties are like. If you go to a portfolio and suddenly you see this building falling to bits, think twice. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and you can immediately say the manager's lousy and, and that's it. Don't bother. Okay. Yeah. Good managers keep their portfolios pristine because they know that's where the value is. Yeah. They manage their capital. So they look at gearing levels as, 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 a, as an example. Yeah. And the key for successful managers, the one ratio I always look at, NAV. NAV, okay. Are you trading at a premium or a discount NAV? Mm. I find those, those REITs that are trading at big discounts for NAV, it's very cheap real estate, okay? You get more money if they close it and sold all the assets off. But I'm saying that you, they, they do get better dividends than normal REITs, but the total returns are nowhere near as good. Um... So I always look at total returns, never look at dividends, look at what the 
what your capital gain is over a year, plus your dividends. So two components, you'll get capital gain and your cash component. And mm-hmm. cash components and reach can be quite large, maybe 60, 70% of your total returns. Mm-hmm. So you're getting money back every year. At the same time, you're getting your share price moving up. What happens yeah. to share price when you, when, when you have big, better dividends, okay? Your share price moves up. So the other thing that's very important is what is the DPU track? I see. I sent you a slide, and if you can show it, uh, that shows, yeah. shows one slide that has the, the, the comparison. We said about what happened to COVID. And this shows what happened to COVID over the last one year. It's just one slide. I don't really think you want to boil your viewers. No worry. I, I, I see whether our videographer will be able to put it up. But um, put it up, put worst, up worst case, no yeah. We'll come back yeah. and talk about it later. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that's the thing. I look at DPU, share price. Okay. If that's okay. going forward, DPU is increasing every every year and your share price will definitely move every year. Okay. It's a natural you know, readjustment back. They're happy with the yield the moment the... The yield starts going up, they bring it down by raising the share price. I see. So this is the, the, the normal leveling thing. And I think if you look at there's a there's a it's like a bipolar market. There's the smaller reach are struggling and the bigger reach are doing very well. Yes, that's right. So and they all trade at a premium, the smaller ones trade at a discount. So to move from a discount to a premium level is very hard because when you're small, you're only allowed to place out 20% of your units to raise capital every year. Okay. I see. So it gives you a limit how, how much money you can raise every year and uh, what you can buy. But if you're trading at 8% to the market, if you're doing, you know, you have to give 8% dividends to the market, what can you buy? That'll be creative, okay? Yeah, that's right, that's right. And you that's need right. desperately to get the market to get get more units in. So you have to place out to get more units in. And uh, it happened to Ascendus during the financial crisis. They went out to do a placement in the middle of the crisis they had to discount it by 40%. Wow. The placement, just to get the money in. The share price never recovered for four years. Wow. <laughs> but they got back there. Give them credit, okay? They got back. Yeah. I'm in fact an investor in that area myself. I love the stock. I think they're great, great, they're a great company. But they could, they're nothing. That time, there's so many uh, debt, debt instruments out there in the market that they couldn't actually control. They've all been called in at the same time. So they do something. So, I mean, it's very important how you manage your debt, what kind of debt you have. Um, short-term, long-term debt, bank loans. Look at the look at the debt profile of the company. It's very important. You don't mm-hmm. have companies that are too highly levered because they okay. have trouble. Uh, you need companies that have headroom to grow, which means that debt levels around 30% gives them a chance to go to 40. Place out, bring it out to 30. That's what we access. We have this, you know, we will we'll buy on debt and then we'll re- retire on placements. I see. So we have this. Oh, that's a good strategy. No, it made it very easy. We kept a, a portion of our debt in RCs, which we could retire. Okay, so we use RCs to buy, and we create um, uh, units in the market to then settle the the RCs later. Ah. So we buy and then put more equity in the business. Buy, put more equity in the business. Okay. So when debt is low, and uh, and if your if your yields are very, if the market loves you and your yields are low. Place more units out because you always buy higher than your, your share price, okay? Your, your, your yields, and you always be accretive. And the trick is getting accretive investments. Accretive investments always get you better DPU. There's no, the math is perfectly clear. The more DPU, the more distributions, the higher distributions are, the higher share price goes. And you find it easier to do that way. So it's, it's a really interesting um, uh, way of actually managing your capital. It's a very simple thing. We sort of cracked the code very early on. We did it every time we went to market. We do roadshows because you see when you do that, you don't have to give what you call a limited prospectus in the market. Yeah, that's right. 
I can't go to the market. I need, I need placing out units because I want to buy this. No. I said, I'm going to the market. I want to get your money to retire my debt. So there's no need for a prospectus. You could do a two-day roadshow, get your commitments in and move on. Because they all knew that waiting in the wings was three or four acquisitions lined up. Mm. And the money came in. We just went up, borrowed again, bought it, and then retired it again. So we could grow up a portfolio quite quickly and still maintain the share price performance. Understand. Understand. Yeah. Okay, you had a question? Yeah, actually, it's more on the, the financing, right? So there, there are all sorts of financing options out there, especially for, you know, when you had Axis and you were, you were a pioneer. So what, walk me through the process of, you know, choosing your preferred source of financing. That's one. And, and the second question I have is, um, when you talk to banks to get loans, what are usually their biggest concerns in relation to REITs? Why would they give, for example, let's say, I'm not saying this is the case, but for example, why would they give, let's say, Axis REIT better terms than, for example, uh, you know, Maple Tree, let's say? I don't know what Maple Tree gets. I can't say that. They probably get very good rates out of Singapore yes. banks, better than we could do here. Yeah. We're living quite a high interest rate culture for a while. Okay, The, the interest rates are not that, that clever. Uh, but we found that doing Sukuks because we're Islamic. Another thing, we went Islamic. That was really a, a stroke of genius, really, because um, when you become Islamic, uh, you get much better financing terms from the banks. And mm. also, the manager doesn't pay tax. Ah. So you get a tax holiday, which is great. Um, so my shareholders and the manager were very pleased. <laughs> it's a, but it was easy for industrials to go, to, to go into Islamic. It's much mm. more difficult for, for other businesses to do that because of the conflict with banking and non-insurances. Ah. I mean, you talk about an office building, no way. It's very tough to do that. Right. Unless, unless your tenant is um, a bank islama <laughs> or something like that. Ah, so you can't, it. It's not that easy to do. So most things like even shopping malls, very hard because okay. they have pubs, they got, you know, they sell pork, they got all kinds of stuff in there that don't comply. And uh, oh, they, yeah. the although the um, rules give you a 20% non-compliance limit, we always try and keep it down about 5%. I see. But there always will be, like you buy a hypermarket, there'll always be the beer section, there'll always be the pork section, but they're very small in terms of footprint. So we're allowed to do that because it's not less than 5%, it's less than 5%, and it I follows see. the rules. So it wasn't difficult to comply. Sorry, question again, to, uh, MJ, what was that? Yeah, yeah, no, no, I think that's- Fantastic structures, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. There's always two types of debt. We first went in to do the read, we're 100% RC. That was easy to do because they have tremendous asset cover. The banks are very happy to give us an RC and the interest rates are much lower. Okay, so we can manage to get our regions moving. So that was fine. And then later on, we tried the bank loans, hated it because they're term loans and they're very clunky, they're expensive. So we moved very solidly to doing seven-year books. I see. And we got surprisingly good, good rates. And so we started with a $300 million super program and then we got it cranked up to $3 billion. Okay, so we can, we can retire one suit and then claw to pay, pay for that with the next suit. So they line them all up, okay? All the ducks in a row. So the financing was to roll over the suit. So it was very easy to manage. And of course, the trouble with is you have to pledge your entire, almost your entire portfolio. They only give you 50 cents on the dollar, okay? To get the, the AAA tranches up. So you only take the AAA tranche, you don't take the balance. So you take the AAA tranche of the bonds, so you work for that basis. So we worked on suit and we worked on that. 
later on we approached to do perpetuals. Mm. I'd heard of. Okay. I hate them. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, the merchant banker that came to give it to me, I threw him out of the office. <laughs> never <laughs> give your never give your, your unit holders a product they don't understand. Yeah, but you see, it, it's coming into the trend, you know, that <clears throat> I mean. Um, the first time I, I really read deeper into it was Top Glove giving perpetuals, you know, and then I was like trying to figure out, okay, so when are they going to convert? And <laughs> yeah. Well, it never converts. You can keep it yeah. there forever, but every, every five years, there's a 10% kicker. Mm. Okay. Which is, uh, you can't argue, it's fixed. Yeah. So when you roll it over again, it cranks up. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, and it really is debt disguises equity. Yeah, it really yeah. is a little bit. You know, don't, I don't think we should actually try and um, hoodwink our unit holders into that feeling. Yeah. And don't forget, they get preference over unit holders. Oh, yeah. So, That's right. That's right. So it's that's more senior, me, right? That it's, to me was an absolute no no. Uh, unit holders have to be held supreme in terms of the creditworthiness and, and the ability to get the first crack at anything. If anything happens to the company, they get the first preference in any liquidation exercise. It doesn't go to the perpetual. So we kept yeah. it clean like that. Yeah. Can I, can I dial back a little bit? Because you said <clears throat> the first option um, was RCs, so revolving credits. How long was the normal tenure of these revolving credits that you guys were getting before? You know, you said Sukuk was about seven years, but are the RCs back then, what were the uh, tenures? One, one, three months. Normally three months, three months turnarounds. We'll do a three-month rollover. Okay, um, okay. Primarily, if the, the, the banking sector is stable, you can do that. I see. Um, you know, the bank sector goes down the toilet, they'll ask for the money back. But because you have such strong cover and such strong cash flows in the company, they feel very comfortable extending it to you and giving uh, you a very, very good rate at the same time. So we I talk see. about, I say my, my RCs with my perpetuals. <laughs> for <laughs> okay. the long term. We use them all okay. the time. Even okay. right up to today, I think uh, Kit May is still using them as, as an important part of our capital management okay. uh, because they're so convenient. Okay. Easy to, easy to raise, the fees attached to getting that debt spreadsheet. You know, okay. like term loan, you know, with all the, the crank, and they're just crazy. You know, you just put, you put some assets with them and say, okay, I want this against an RC, and they'll do it. I understand. What, what, what were the interest rates like back then for RCs, if you don't mind educating <sighs> us about this? Around four. Four percent? Okay. Yeah, it's around four okay. percent. Four, four and, and, a half. and that time, um, interest rates for on, on fixed, low, fixed deposits were, I, I, I'm, maybe I'm making reference to the 90s, the period of the 90s. Was that, was no, that no, the low? No, only started in 2005. Ah, okay, so post, post uh, AFC. Okay, so that means probably about the highest you'll probably get about five percent interest rate. I'm no, around the, uh, loans are running, running about five. Yeah. Yeah. So books seem much lower okay. uh, long term. Then people like the green green paper attached to it, so it was fine. So okay. we we thought they gave us a much much more stable. Uh, you see, don't leave anything to chance in terms of when it comes to refinancing. There's always a big question: Can I refinance or not? Mm. You don't mm. again you have the same problem having sort of fire sale to, okay. to meet your debt obligations. So portion. Yeah. Something something on COVID now. Um ah. I think you touch a little bit <laughs> with regards to um the gestures that you guys made. You know, uh, it's so ironic this morning it was uh I was reading your profile on LinkedIn uh, uh, for the, I, I got knows how many times. I chanced upon one of the posts that you liked on the Speedmart 99 founder. The 99 All right, yeah. founder. Yeah. He lives in Clang. He's a Clang boy like me. Yeah. And he's, he's, nice. he's, also, he's also a handicapped guy. And yeah. he built this empire, which I've got to take my hat off to. Oh, yeah. He did. Uh, did an amazing yeah. job with his, yeah. his empire. And we support him because, hey, I think he's a Clang boy, but he's got so many outlets. 
Oh yeah, exactly. The distribution help. point. <laughs> if you want to send help to to any of these people, you got to send help in the form of cash vouchers, not cash vouchers, vouchers for food. Yeah. But they can go just around the corner and get what they want. Correct. If you get something from like Tesco's, they got to travel all the way across town to get it. And yeah. sometimes with the barriers and all that, they can't move. So Speedmart was a quickest way of getting help to them and not having to pack food parcels. Okay. Oh yeah. This way they had their dignity. Yeah. They got the coupons. They could buy what they want. Yeah. They were like a charity case game, receiving food from other people. And I think there's something we all forget. You know, when people give things away, they like to have pictures of themselves taken with them giving the food away. Yeah. Okay? I feel sorry for the people receiving it. You know. Exactly. You know, exactly. Where is their sense of achievement or probably just you know, down already? They're getting you know having to take charity is not an easy easy thing to do. Right. So we try and keep yeah. it as, as quiet as possible and do our work in a quiet way. Yeah. So that the dignity of the the beneficiary is actually maintained, actually. Maintained, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so COVID-19, and, and I know this is a conundrum for especially retail malls. Yeah. Um, how long do you think, um, I, I know it's a crystal ball to know how long do you think will last, but what are the other tricks up the manager's sleeve that they can pull out in order to benefit both parties? So, so there, there are things like um, reduction in rental rates, uh, probably a moratorium of uh, tenants paying, but what are your thoughts on not having the tenant to pay for a certain period. Do you think it's a bad thing or do you think it's something that it's temporary or what are your thoughts? It's killing their DPU. I mean, we work on cash flow, okay? They work on getting their rents on time. Yeah. Is, if there's any disruption there, their performance suffers. I see. You can see the performance of some of the, the, the retail REITs, they really had a hard time with that. Yeah. You know, because most of their tenants are very short leases. Mm. And with industrials, you have 15-year leases. Market dies, doesn't dies, they'll still pay. They're normally big companies that got balance sheets that can actually manage that. But the yeah. smaller retail boys, you know, their cash flow dries up within two months. They're not rolling it over. Oh, God. Cash very quickly. So, yeah. and some of them actually, some of the retail malls, I think the problems they had was they want a sort of a, a base fee and a turnover tax. Ah, yes, there were no right. sales and no turnover tax. So the base fee meant their whole income drops. I can't say who's having that problem. I've not researched it. But I think this is how the math works. Mm. That if you have a base fee and a turnover tax is not there, um, it reverses the base fee, which means your income drops. And you can always tell by the distributions from the REITs. I, I track them quite closely. I mm -hmm. watch how the distributions are going. But give them credit, people are staying with them. The investors aren't throwing the stock. They're staying with them. They soften the prices of soften. They say it's a good entry point for people wanting to move in. I mean, put it this way. We can't duplicate another people again. And it's there to stay long term. It's like a school. Okay? It was a school, but it uh, it uh, it has legs, and it's a, it's a wonderful development. Uh, it's iconic, irreplaceable. It's like Mid Valley. They'll never be able to build another Mid Valley in KL or another pavilion. There's no land or desire. So you'll, you'll see that the the investors have stayed with them, and I think the turnaround will come probably somewhere in November, December, in time for the Chinese New Year or maybe the New mm -hmm. Year's refresh. I think everybody's tired. They, they're dying to get back to spending money. Yeah. They still got it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and um, you'll find there's a big spike moment. I think the vaccination rates are picking up quite well. That's right. And That's once right. we hit herd immunity around November, things will start to open up. They're really starting to open up now. I think people are getting of a view that we have to live with this thing. Yeah. We get it. We get it. We don't get it. We don't get it. Okay. 
So if you get it, hope you don't die. That's all. It's That's like, right. it's like <laughs> Russian roulette. Some people get it badly, some people don't. So yeah. there's going to be cases where it's going to spread. Um, but I think uh, people who are smart but have got vaccinated. But I think people are going to say, if you're vaccinated, come. If you're not vaccinated, stay away for your own safety. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I think that's going to be the rule. Even the schools, uh, students who actually been vaccinated will allow back, back into school. Yeah. So they're going to have this underlying rule that the vaccination rate is going to be the pre-qualification for entry into any uh, shopping mall or things like that. But that will mean that things can come up. Don't forget, the vendors in the malls themselves have also done a pivot into mm. e-commerce. What they can't sell themselves, they've gone you know, into, into selling. Yeah. I used to get a lot of my stuff from the supermarket before I cannot buy online. Everything. When, yeah, I go back everything. To them, when I go back to them again, it's not the question. Okay. That's right. That's right. Um, great. I, I think you, if, if I were to extract a salient point from it, I think this, the best way is really just opening out of sectors lah, rather than, you know, uh, trying to reduce rental rates, getting a moratorium. I think the, the only most um the best solution actually is really opening up of the sectors i guess it's just kicking the can down the road by doing that because it doesn't help anybody economically exactly exactly uh, the pain is, is there all the time so um getting the people back to work is important yeah. getting jobs opening i'm just worried that you know at the end of the day when they say okay all open up no one opens up they've all gone bust yeah so all these shops will never open again and all the yeah. high street that we're used to will not exist anymore so it'll be interesting to see what happens in the long term. But don't forget, this is also played into the, in the hands of the e-commerce industry in a big way. Yes. You know, the industrial, industrial REITs have done very well. The industry itself has done very well. I mean, 37% right. growth last year, unheard of. You know, I think all these, these e-commerce companies have posted record growth and right. they're piling in and they're getting better at what they do. So it's interesting to watch people's, uh, put it this way, sometimes they get so fed up, I can't find stuff. I have to go and order it online. Okay. Uh, try a couple of places I can't find home. The hell with this. Let me go and see if it's on. Yes, it's there. Yeah. And I can buy it. Uh, sometimes not the best packaging when it arrives. They got to get that act together. Sometimes it's disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you have to live with it. Right, correct. Um, what do you think are things that should improve in the Malaysian REIT sector, uh, either the managers, the quality of the assets, you know, what, what do you think is gnawing at you that, you know, if you were back at Mr. Ma being the chairman, what would you advocate your members to do? Go forth and multiply. <laughs> Get out of Malaysia, go find some other assets to build and grow your fund. You know, I mean, it's the, we, we're not just a Malaysian fund. We, we, all funds can be global. We got to get our think, mindset out of being, you know, a Kampong REIT into a global REIT because, I mean, Whitetail's doing it. Yeah. I think KBJ have put their toe in the water and gone offshore. It yeah. can be done and you might be able to find good assets to buy and inject. And you'll be applauded for it. There's risk of obviously attached to it, but good managers manage that risk for you. That's what they're paid to do. Understand. And they really earn their strikes by doing that Understand. Uh, and grow the assets out. I mean, we need REITs of 10 to $20 billion in size to really get the world's attention. At the moment, most of the foreign investors have left. I see. Can't seem to track them back again because the growth rates have been extremely slow and sluggish. Mm -hmm. We're not growing quickly enough. Okay. We're not buying portfolios. We're buying individual um, products. I you see. know, the way the, the global people, boys go and do it, they'll buy a portfolio of assets from somebody and bring it to the beat. So okay. Blackstone and BlackRock and all these guys go. Yeah, yeah. BlackRock is insane. I mean, look at the size of the portfolio, man. 
how they create platforms, okay? Like uh, they create fund platforms. You look at the Goodman Group, which is interesting because they're, they're 36 billion US Aussie dollars in size. They started off as a small REIT and they set a platform up, they started doing development. Yeah. So, you know, the thing is that we tried to, to, to expand out of this as well. This is why I moved out of access to start a, a fund, a fund uh, platform that will attract capital and we can do bigger stuff and create okay. products. We create a lot of products for the REITs that will really make a lot of sense. Okay. Because, you know, the new products now are big in value. I mean, a, a new warehouse, big one today, $400 million, $300 million. The big ticket items. You can grow a REIT very quickly if you have the ability to build and inject these kind of assets into your portfolio. I see. And we need I people see. to get into that, that mindset of becoming more adventurous. I mean, the, the, the uh, stakeholders of the REIT manager are property developers. They should be looking at setting up funds that can attract capital they can't do it by themselves. I mean, no one's balance sheet's that strong. They can go and develop, but they can track capital in to build out their land banks. Mm. As opposed to crawling along, building it slowly, they could accelerate the process if we track global capital, then become a little bit of a global player. I see. You know, we become more important as, as, as a place to come. And of course, we have this enormous potential with our ports, okay? And the ECRO coming across is going to link Kwantan to, to Port Klang. We've actually produced yeah. a paper on this internally with our own research. Interesting reading, because when that happens, you know, Kwantan, uh, Kwantan to, to Port Klang by rail cuts three days shipping out of sending it through Singapore. Wow. That could be a game changer. It will take time, but it means uh, ships can come in from Shanghai, park at Kwantan, bus it over to Port Klang, shoot it off. You know, these are things that can happen. So there's a lot of potential for the country. We get the best infrastructure outside of Singapore by okay. far. Power, water, telecoms, you name it. We have it all there. We've just not been able to pull the threads together to make it work. I mean, we, the biggest mistake we've ever done, we took the eye off the ball with industrial development. Mm. And uninteresting. Everyone wanted to go and do merchant banking or the services became more important than the industrial component of our economy. Understand. But by and large, we should have been looking at moving our economy, industrial economy, into a higher level of technology. But again, the big mistake we made was bringing foreign workers in, low yep. pay, depressed the entire wage structure in the country, and this is why today you have 40% of the country in B40 status. Yes. I'm sorry, it's just gone to 50% with the pandemic. That's the stats. Yeah. yeah. Another 48% of the B, the M40s have now the, entered the B40 category. And gross uh, uh, GDP is uh, dropping. Yeah. It's, it's sad, but it's the reality of uh, what's on the ground, boots on the ground today. And um, I'm very aligned with you, Dato. Um, I mean, in, even with our research group, we have a stocks research group and we were just discussing uh, yesterday about how engineers, fresh graduates as engineers, civil engineers, whatever engineering major that you have, are seeing not many employers willing to train them up and paying them better. There's, there's not many employers. I think there was a, st a statistic that came out uh, yesterday. Less than 2% of employers were willing to pay more than 3000 for an engineer. So <laughs> I'll tell you a story about my engineering journey, okay? Oh, please, please. When I came back from university in 1974, so um, my first job paid me $1,200 a month. That's 1974. Yeah. Okay. That was probably in today's money worth $12,000. Oh, yeah. Okay. I could buy a house in SS2 for $24,000, which was two years' salary. That's why it worked back then. Yes. Now the same engineer comes back, he earns $3,000 a month if he's lucky, 
and the house has gone eight hundred thousand dollars. All right. <laughs> yeah, because that goodbye, right? Yeah. So there's something intrinsically wrong in the way we should actually employ people. And see, the thing is that a we don't like training people. Right. Why? And they won't pay for fully trained people. They're too expensive. So they end up with mediocre, you know. And we can't move move the needle. So it. And in fact, the funny thing is that you know people that come out of technical training, you know, the vocational schools. Yes. Starting pays four thousand. Yeah, that's right. We get jobs immediately with the with the with the engineering companies. We yes. bring them on board to run their CNC machines and stuff like that. They have right. the technology and the ability to do it straight out of the box. They go straight to machine and run it. Yeah. We don't have that ability. Engineers, I mean, um, should be paid much better. That's my view. As a profession, yeah. we're dumbed down very badly. Yeah. Uh, so you don't find many engineers. They want to stick to it. Eventually, do do get paid. I mean, I I employ engineers who earn a lot more than that. And I pay them well, and uh, we get we get a lot of, lot out of them as well. Great, especially the civil engineers working on our projects. We we do get, we do try and attract the best talent. Great, I believe they should never pay people peanuts. Yeah, because you monkeys. pay peanuts, you get monkeys. <laughs> 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 so, um, let's segue a little bit. Uh, MJ, if you have any questions. No, no, no. I'm just enjoying myself. Yeah. <laughs> Talking about monkeys, you know. One hour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just segue a little bit into... Um, I, as an outsider, I really admire you as um, a read manager. But in your case, are there any read managers that you kind of like think they are really at their game? I know you've mentioned a lot of your peers, you know. Um, Probably I'll name some Dr. Dr. Jeffrey of Sunway. Anyone else that you you, you think that you know are worth mentions? I think Philip does a very good job in Pavilion. He's got a good group okay. of business. I will say okay. that. Um, Maybe globally, even you know, any any read manager think, they've kind of um, sorry the the the, the uh, CEO at the time of Ascendus, Tan uh, Okay, great admiration for him. Lovely man, very clever, very good, very good uh, leader for his company. Did a lot of very interesting things. He told me about outsourcing. <laughs> <laughs> Don't have a big staff. Okay, you get to enjoy the management fee even more. <laughs> <laughs> so no, he, he did a very good job. I mean, he grew Ascendus at the most phenomenal rate. Mind you, a very good captain with him, and that was Phil Pierce, who now is very sought after. You know, he's with ESR. Mm. Uh, Yes, I was growing by leaps and bounds. Yeah. They just announced their takeover of uh, the Ara Group, okay. making them the third largest real estate company in the world. Wow. Ara, Ara owns Logos, so it's becoming a real monster. And uh, Mike DeJong, the, the managing director for, for Asia, sent me, because I know him very well from okay. he sent me a text saying, Well, we just closed a $4 billion fund for China, <laughs> US. <laughs> Why can't we think like that? John, what's wrong with us? Yeah, okay. yeah. Because do better. All, all ambitions get small results, you know? Yeah. I would say that. We've got to think a lot bigger than what we're capable of right now. Yes. We're scared of success. Yes. Scared <laughs> of taking risks. I don't know what it is. You know, we don't seem to think big. Small is we okay. Need, we, need, we need giants like you to, to kick our butts, you know, Dr. Stewart. Serious. I, I'm not kidding you. <laughs> kick, kick, kick harder, you know? <laughs> I think that we all need to realize that we all have tremendous potential. I have great admiration for a lot of the Malaysians who work in this country. Mm. It's hard. Singapore loves us. It pays a lot more to move there. Yeah, I exactly. don't seem to get traction in our own home ground. You know, it's been a horrible, horrible uh, return. But I will say, you know, in the, in the in the tech side, I see a lot of very interesting things happening. Oh yes, uh, we're creating a brand new class of entrepreneurs 
And a lot of young people are going back to farming, which oh, is yeah. unusual. And believe me, when they go to farming, it'd be a very different kind of farming. I mean, these kids are very tech savvy and they can really transform that industry from backward industry to something really modern. And because, you know, we have a sitting on an education conference on Friday, uh, sponsored by Iskander Group. And I was telling them, you know, the trouble with kids today is that they carry around with them the most powerful tool ever invented, the handphone. Oh, it's the yeah. powerful computer that anyone can ever own, okay? The whole world's in their hands and they never use it. Social media. Yes. That's all it's useful. Yeah. The amount of information that's contained in that device is just unbelievable, mind-boggling. We ne yeah. never had that kind of access to it growing up or even in university. Don't forget, in university, I use a slide rule, no calculator, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and the nearest computer we had was occupying two floors of a building and all the power of Pentium 386, something like that. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, took us forever to get results out of it. But you know, things yeah. change and things are moving forward. And the technological pace is getting frantic and we can't keep up with it. But this right. is where the opportunities lie, you know, in, tech, in the tech sector, for sure. And the new kind of jobs that are coming out of it. It's a brave new world. I mean, I, I, I have a daughter, she's 12. She has a YouTube channel and you know, you, you, you can't, you know, back, back then I, 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 if you tell your parents about, you know, this new venture. <laughs> I'm going to the movies. Okay. Yeah. She has the EBGBs out of parents when the parents, when the kids say, I want to go into movies, you know, it's not a proper job. Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> a proper job anymore. You know, internet's given a lot of capabilities to a lot of people, and the yeah. tools available are just amazing. Right, that we can be so inventive and creative with. Yeah, great. Um, what would be your wish list for the Malaysian REIT sector? I know go forth and multiply, but how? Okay, maybe maybe put it this in this angle, Adato. What would encourage? What would? What's your pitch? to young people to enter this industry, to help it go forth and multiply? <laughs> well, first, you got to get in the manager's position first. You know, that's the way that's the way you make change. Change always happens at the top. They make all the yeah. decisions. But if, um, you know, it basically is an entry to the capital markets for them and the kind of experience you get. One, one little other add, add story I didn't really tell you is that in the middle of all my access years, we tried to do something really, really bold. When talk about business unusual, we attempted to launch a global REIT in Malaysia. Ah. It's never been done before, okay? I'm like the Don Quixote of the world. I'd like to try tipping at windmills, but we nearly pulled it off, okay? It was a one billion US dollar portfolio. Wow. We listed on the KLS as an Islamic REIT, okay? We had already done the roadshows. We had about nearly 50% take up before we went to market. One half of our portfolio was in Japan. But another big chunk was in Australia, a few assets in Hong Kong. Okay. One week before we went to market, the tsunami hit Japan. And Fukushima was oh, below. We had to pull it. <laughs> oh, man. I was All that effort. I was heartbroken. But guess what? You know, we saw the best of the world. You know, we, we, we did roadshows in Saudi and UK, all over, because everyone was interested in the Islamic, part, Islamic component. So all the Islamic countries were really champing at the bit, really keen to, to take a chunk of this, um, this asset class. So we thought we were in a role, but it's called the AGIR, Access Global Industrial Week. It was an Islamic week, I don't know which it was, but I think it was Islamic week. So AGIR K 
came to an end when the Fukushima nearly blew or did blow and gave everyone a chance to scramble. I was actually at Sendai two months before the earthquake. Wow. Looking at assets. So, I mean, do, you, do you still have the prospectus? I would love to have a reading. I know I know. Uh, I think I can pick it up for you, John. I can have a read. Yeah, sure. Why not? Yeah, yeah, I would love to have a read. I mean, I mean, this is something, even though it, it remained an ideation stage, and I wouldn't say oh, I, it, it's this close is to market. Yeah, close it's close to the market, right? It's so, actually just around the corner. Yeah. We had everything lined up, finance, everything was all figured out. Um, and we learned so much about doing cross border deals because, you know, we learned about Japan's crazy uh, uh, structures you have to go into, you know, TK, TMKs, and all these funny things. You had to go back to, to school to learn how you used to structure financing deals or even ownership deals and how you do bonds and stuff in Japan. And Australia itself is another market on its own. Mm -hmm. What's born out of this that we did a, when we post, post uh, this event, we actually, some of the assets became available, okay? And we persuaded Rajesh um, myself, my partner myself, persuaded the EPF group to go mm -hmm. and take the portfolio on with Goodman, which they did. And then consequently bought another portfolio in Europe, about nearly two billion US dollars worth, and they done very well out of it. Yeah, I, I would have, I would love to read the prospectus now and see. But it was an interesting just... adventure. The thing is that if you don't make business an adventure, you can't sit at your desk every day the same thing. It drives you nuts. Wow. Yeah. Golden words. <laughs> no, you have to get off the butt and do something. You know, otherwise, you know, if you don't think around, don't think what's around the corner, you'll never be able to capture it. And your competitors nowadays will just overtake you, yeah. left, right, and center. For the Greek market, my, my wish is, that, as I said before, go forth and multiply. Um, look at uh, better ways of funding your, your acquisitions. Mm -hmm. Sell off your assets, buy some new ones. Mm. Nothing's forever. You know, we have too much, too much uh, of a philosophy here, sentimental value. I said, to hell with sentimental value. It's just <laughs> a building. Get rid of it. Buy something that gives you more upside than the old one does. Because some of them reach their end of life. Yeah. And they must be thrashed. Or you sell it off and take the money and do something else with it. There's so much more opportunity. Opportunity is adding on to the old opportunity. That opportunity means divesting of old opportunities and bringing in new ones. Mm -hmm. You can't build on an old portfolio. You can definitely regenerate it. Great. Great. Um, at this point, um, I want to talk about Kiwanis a little bit. Oh, okay. Right. All right. Uh, but, bef but before that, I actually wanted to share a story. So, as you can clearly see, Dato Stewart is a very articulate man. And um, I just wanted to share this story, my, my very personal story with Dato Stewart. So he invited me, I invited him over uh, to, to speak uh, to a group of people about REITs. Uh, he kindly obliged. And in return, he asked whether I could speak on his behalf. And I, within a heartbeat, I, I said yes. And the crux of the story was not so much about the talk, but how he actually sent over uh, um, this, this, this photo over here, right? So I, I don't know if you guys, you guys can see it on YouTube, but it was just an appreciation um, uh, note. And this guy's this guy busy. He drove all the way uh, to my office, uh, unannounced, just said, hey, John, I'm, I'm here in the office. And I was like, wow, I... I that was that was the that cemented that says this is how an English this is how a gentleman should actually treat treat people, and it was it was such a it was an honor for me to actually get this and uh, it was that pleasure, John. You know, it was a great talk. We really yeah. enjoyed your your. I just wanted to share your experience with other members in the club. 
Right. Uh, but having said that, yes, you know, Kimon is a part of my life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the best part is uh, you got my surname wrong and I didn't have the heart to tell you <laughs> on the play. <laughs> I have a very difficult name. Is it how can and who can? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So, so let's talk about Kiwanis now. Uh, but I want—I really wanted to share that story because uh, you know how I wish uh, more people were like that in the world, right? Nato. So, what what made you go into Kiwanis? Why? What was it that? Uh, what were the objectives or certain things about Kiwanis that attracted your your philanthropic effort towards that? That, uh, it didn't so start with Kiwanis per se. It started out much earlier than that. My, my entry mm-hmm. into, into community service started in 79. Okay. When I joined the Apex Club, which was an Australian uh, branch of the Apex Clubs in Australia. Yeah. And we had a club in playing, and there's some uh, members there that wanted to do great stuff. So we did. You know, we had a great uh, journey together mm-hmm. and uh, got really interested. But that club had to retire me at 40. So when I turned 40, I had to leave. It's Young Men's Service Club. I see. So when I finished that, I said, what am I going to do with myself? So um, Kiwanis had just come to Malaysia. It wasn't very big at the time. They had probably two, three members. And so I joined the Clan Club at the time. Mm-hmm. My wife, my late wife, uh, uh, was teaching. And so I asked her, would you like to help me set up a Down syndrome center in Clang? Mm. And she was tired of teaching primary school. So, uh, sorry, um, kindergarten. So she said, yes, we'd like to give it a crack. And she did a phenomenal job building it up. Mm-hmm. And so it started from those rather humble beginnings of five kids in one small building. we got 60 kids now. And the, uh, the club owns its own building right now for housing the, these kids. But that aside, I think, you know, community service is something that was brought up with my parents. I see. My mother was very much into public service. She served on school boards. She, served, uh, she started the family planning movement in, in Slangor. Mm-hmm. Uh, did a lot of work on the estates, uh, especially with, you know, talk about uh, ESG. She used to go and berate all these estate managers. At the time, they were all Englishmen, okay? You get them to provide the workers with proper accommodation, diets, education on, on basically on family planning. Okay. And gave them land to cultivate food on and things like that. So she was very fond of her, we used to call her Periyama, you know? Mm. <laughs> In India, she, my mom was strange because she grew up on an estate and uh, she, uh, from a young age, her best friend was the cook's son, okay, who was Tamil. And so okay. she found out that she could speak, she picked it up and uh, didn't realize she was good at it. So she went uh, over to India during the war. She was actually evacuated from Malaya. She was actually studying medicine in Singapore and she ah. got a scholarship. And she landed there, so what am I going to do? She said, okay, I'll take up nursing. So she registered as a nurse, got trained up, got a certificate, and then eventually when the war was over, came back. But uh, she could speak perfect Tamil. And my wife, my, my, my mother was very fair, very European-looking lady. And uh, when she went to these estates, you know, these, the Tamil guys would try talking behind her back. She'd turn and fire them in Tamil. <laughs> I gave them the shock of their lives. She taught me about, about um, altruism. Mm. giving, you know, with asking back. And I've always held that very close to my heart. I think right. it's important. You know, you don't go waving your banner or, or posting your success on, on how good you are to other people. You just do it and get on with your life. Um, it gives me nothing greater joy than to help people on their way. You know, anytime any of my staff do well or they leave me to go for a better job, I applaud them. Great. Because, you know, you, you can leave the nest now and go and spread your wings somewhere else. If you learned enough here, then please go. You know, don't... Don't stay on my account. I think you have mm. other things to do. And a lot of them have done very well. They've gone ahead and, you know, 
started their own companies up and been very successful. More than me, they were more money than I have. And I, I don't, don't, I don't um, regret a minute of it. I would take the view that if anyone needs help, I will tell them anything. I don't keep secrets. I share, I'm a very sharing person in everything I do. If there's something I know, I teach them. Okay, and uh, very much like, you know, the, uh, the white flag campaign we did in Klang for the Kiwanis, the recent uh, for the, for the, uh, the uh, poorer people in our community. Mm-hmm. We studied the whole social media platform thing. It started to go into creating a, a payment portal and crowdfunding model. I never done it before. And it's fascinating what the power of the internet can do, even for your business. Yes. I don't think you've even tapped partly getting trying to reach your target audiences and becoming a global superstar. So it'd be interesting to see, you know. Um, I'm currently, you know, as I said, my lifelong learning project, I never stopped learning. I've signed up with an MIT course to learn about social media. Wow. I'm halfway through it right now. It's fascinating. So much to learn. And a lot of the things I'm learning that I'm applying to both my business as well as to my charities, uh, getting people to understand, you know, they call it the attention economy. Oh, yeah, that's right. Lovely word for it, attention economy. Yeah. And there's so many interesting stories inside that, that you learn how the Russians took over Crimea without firing a shot. Oh, yeah. Social media platforms. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Or how Trump got elected using Facebook. So <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. Targeted messaging and things like that. It's the, the, the understanding of the powerhouses that exist around us, fascinating. That's right. That's right. Um, probably this is one of my last questions, unless MJ has some questions, is... Um, so Alistair, your son, uh, yeah. is part of your, it's together with you and your business and probably two questions. Um, one is what do you think are important values today? I mean, today the academic route is very, very competitive. You know, I, I was telling my daughter as long, I just, ironically, three days before this chat, I had a conversation with my daughter about what I do online, what, what I invest. And I gave her basic concepts about stocks. And she said that, no, 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 uh, this, this, uh, this is a boy thing. You know, I, I want to do my arts. I said, yeah, you can do your arts provided you, you have financial sound, uh, financially sound uh, management, right? So what were the values do you think you would want to inculcate to your children on getting them better prepared for this, you know, this VUCA world today yeah, on top of the academic uh, smarts, on top of, you know, um, being... Uh, doing well, getting a degree? What, 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 what do you think skills that matter going forward for your children? I think being relevant in uh-huh. today's technology. I mean, you never stop learning. That's my lesson to them. I mean, I always say to myself, uh, all I learned in university where to look things up in books. Use only 2% of what you learn, seriously. Yeah. It's a nice, two, a nice four-year paid holiday by your parents. <laughs> so you learn other social skills like, you know, um, getting going out for drinks with your friends, or you know, seeing the world and doing all that stuff. And but meeting you know, girls as well, right? Meeting of course. Girls. Yeah, right. The, the important thing is that you know you learn social skills. And don't forget, social skills are a very important part of life now. Mm. You know, people with good EQ get ahead of any anyone else. Um, being liked by a bigger crowd of people gets yourself promoted because that's the kind of persons companies seek out. You know, influences and people who can sort of shape decision making. Yeah. Yes, men are definitely out of the way. So I always yeah. teach my son, you know, to, to keep on learning, uh, never stop learning. And um, I hope he's going to do his MBA next year. Oh, yeah. He's okay. signing up for, for the one at the Asian Business School here in KL. Ah. Start of MIT Sloan, which is great, you know. Uh, it's a great institution. So I said, you know, 
you, you can't see CEOs aren't born. They basically have to study their way up there to certainly say, you must understand all the bits and pieces. Well, having said that, I believe, uh, was it Simon Sinek said, they should never call people CEOs. They should be called CDOs, Chief Vision Officers. That's right. That's right. So the yeah. important role, what I learned very, very early on in being a CEO is that it's not about managing people, it's about leading them. And people forget that. I never yeah. was a micromanager. I trusted my people in, in, implicitly to finish what they're supposed to do, but led them if they needed help, uh, provide it for them. If they wanted something, um, I'll get it for them. If they need training, I'll provide it for them. If they need budgets, I'll fight it. I'll fight for them. Wow. If, I felt, if they felt they needed a raise, I'll fight that for them as well. Okay? Provided it was within the budget, like a manager. So I, I think um, we had a very good understanding with the people I served with. And uh, I, I'm grateful to them too. To the end of my days, I worked with some wonderful people in my lifetime. No regrets. And I think my children are learning that from me in a way. And hopefully they'll understand, you know, that success comes from a number of different channels. Okay. Attitude, kindness, politeness, okay, doing the right thing, working hard, not giving up, okay. And those kind of qualities you, you try and inculcate in your children. You can't teach them stuff. They, they learn faster than you. Yeah. So whatever your kid wants to do, also the old, the old adage, you know, John, when, um, say you're, you're in school, okay, and you come back with a bad grade in math, but you get an A in, in literature. What does your family do? They send you for mass tuition. Oh, yeah. And they forget the fact that if they sent you for something where you can learn more about being great in, in, in English literature or, or writing a novel, I mean, that would be your strength, right? That's they right. always build on your weakness. I don't know why families do that. They always keep building on your weaknesses. You're yeah. not interested in math. What are you good at? <laughs> you know, you get the multiplier effect of what you're good at, not try and drag you up for something you really hate. You'll never be good at it. Whatever you don't like, you'll never do well. I, I think MJ has a lot to add based on yeah, the I think, I think that's why that's why so many of us uh, who, who you know exactly experience what you just mentioned are you know to use uh, a British slang right bang average right so <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah because yeah so but I I, I love uh, what you said because I I relate to that a lot because. Uh, you know, it ties into the education because if you, people are only focusing on their weaknesses, so they become essentially mediocre in many things. Yeah. And so then when they enter the workforce, like companies have no clue what they're good at. Yeah, I know. You know what I mean? So yeah, I, I really love that. I only have one last question, right? And in your very long and, you know, uh, illustrious and interesting journey up to now, whether in life or business, right? How would you summarize the three biggest discoveries and lessons that you wouldn't have discovered if you didn't take the path that you've taken? Um, one of the first lessons I learned as an engineer was with um, an American engineer who came over, was part of our licensing body. And uh, we had to test the sound of an air conditioner. Back then, everyone needed very quiet air conditioning. So we, we developed one. So we were testing how loud it was. So I got this piece of equipment and he did all these tests for three days, okay? And they gave him all the results. And he said, did he calibrate it? No. Okay. <laughs> MJ, experience is a collection of your failures. Okay. <laughs> Always remember that. If you fail at something, you've learned something. If you don't fail at anything, you never learn anything. That's true. You know? 
That's why people who live with their mothers to old, old age think they're perfect because their mothers keep telling them you're perfect. Get married and the truth comes out. It <laughs> <laughs> was such a wonderful story. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people have, have influenced my life. My parents were a very big influence in my life, yes. My wife was a big influence in my life. She taught me all about education with kids, you know. She was so good with them. And she had huge empathy with what she was doing. Uh, she taught me how to cook. <laughs> Just another very important lesson in life. Feeding yourself <laughs> was a very important lesson. But uh, yeah, it's... Uh, and of course, in, in business and things like that, you know, the, the partners I had were very, very good at what they did. And I learned a lot from them. And never be afraid to learn from other people. Doesn't make you look stupid. It makes you smart. Mm. I always ask. I always ask stupid questions. If you don't understand something, I'll ask people to explain it again. Because there's no point going around nodding and say, "I understand what you said." If you don't, always ask questions. If you don't understand something, I mean that's a very important thing you should learn to do. A lot of kids don't do that. You know, they go to lectures. They go over their heads, and then suddenly, everyone okay? Yeah, everything was good. What did he say? <laughs> <laughs> and they quickly feverish trying to try and work it out at home. But it's not the point. I mean, engage. You know. And I think uh, soft skills, which I learned um, a lot of from from being in in the in the NGOs, managing people. NGO is the best fertile ground for management. Because how do you get things done by people you don't pay? First lesson: it's the ultimate motivational. Um, you know how to push buttons and get people to do things. How to make people do things for you, yeah, without having to pay them. You know, normally the old thing was you know I pay you, you do something. That's the most taken care of thing. But getting people to work for you willingly without compensation is a true skill. I can't say I've got it yet, but I keep working at it. The one's perfect. But at the end of the day, I would say, at the end of everything, you must have lived a life that's worth remembering. Wow. Okay. Just remember that. You know, when you're gone, how will you be remembered? That's the question to ask yourself. What good have you done? What bad have you done? What legacy be left for people to think think about? Not the fact they won't have a you know statue of yourself anywhere, but I think uh, it all boils down to how kind you've been along your journey, helping people along the way. That's basically human kindness. I think it's the most important characteristic of anyone that I can think of. Great, amazing, love it. Yeah, love <laughs> it. Yeah, love it. Um, MG, any more questions? No. No, any more questions would ruin the mood, really. So. Yeah, that, 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 was, that was the high already. That was the shit that I don't know, right? So, Dr. Stewart, um, where can people find you? Well, I can share my email address with anybody you want. They can, they can write to me. I'm happy right. to answer questions. I always left my door open. In fact, when I was doing my roadshows with Axis, um, I always spend time milling with the, the unit holders. Great. I spend time chatting with them, you know, answering their questions. You know, thanking them for coming. And I did that naturally because I, I was appreciative of what they did. They took the time out to come and yeah. listen to what we were doing and ask questions. I think that alone requires recognition. Great. I think that's very Great. important. Yeah. So uh, I know they, they can find you on LinkedIn. Um, I'll leave an email in the link below for them people to find you. Um, you can send my Gmail address if you can. I'll send it to you. Yeah, that's sure. My, my every, all, all other email account I use because Great. I don't want to clash with my... my uh, company account because yeah, it's you to flood it flooded enough as it is and yeah. trying to filter through various emails that are not relevant to business makes it difficult for me. Great. So I'll send you my Gmail. Have you got my Gmail account? I know. I, I think either that or maybe do you have a I'll social media account that, you know, at least it helps filter you, filter 
The guy I'm on Facebook, but never post anything. So don't bother okay. doing that. <laughs> I don't post anything. On, on LinkedIn, my posts are very sparing. Okay. Yeah. Unless it's an exceptional story I wish to share with people, I'll share it. Yeah. And no brag sheets there at all. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I keep it very quiet. But I, I use it as a source of information for my own business. Because Wait. a lot of people post some very interesting things there, what's happening in the markets. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, vehicle. I think of all the social media platforms for business, LinkedIn is probably the most relevant one to me. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Facebook is the least. Okay, great. Okay. Uh, I think uh, the, the best way is get on LinkedIn, find out Stuart Lebroy, and it's L A B R O O Y, guys. So <laughs> <laughs> it gets it gets murdered. I say the truth. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, Dato Stewart, it has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, too bad, you know, I really wanted to get you into the studio, you know, then it would have been much more fun and then we could have, yeah, have drinks after that. But, uh, you know, oh. uh, yeah. So, uh, MJ, any last words for Dato Stewart? No, I, I, I really, uh, yeah, I mean, it's been such a pleasure to, yeah. you know, well, not meet face-to-face, but, you know, at least virtually, essentially a pioneer in the industry, right? I mean, how, yeah, exactly. how, how often do we get it, you know? We don't, we don't get to meet the Lip Gotong of uh, the real industry. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you're, too, you're too kind. You're too kind. Seriously, yeah. you know, it's, uh, I, was a, I was the right guy, the right time, the right place, and it just happened. It was just all by accident in a way. The fact that it happened the way it did, it was just purely a, a series of things that fell into place at the right time. And right. the timing to market was absolutely spot on. Yeah. It, correct, it, it, it grabbed the mood. That made a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, stay safe, Dato. Uh, Thank you, John, for uh, inviting me on this call. I enjoy chatting both of you. Uh, yeah. First time meeting MJ face to face. You're from KL, MJ, or you yeah, came a long way? I'm, I'm from PJ. Actually, my uh, my place is near the 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 one of the Axis uh, buildings Manara in Axis. no in uh, Ishijaya. That's about ten minutes from Ishijaya. Oh, okay, okay. I think I know which one. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Right. So. Um, to all the listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this as much as MJ and I have done. And thank you again, Dr. Stewart. So see no, you guys no. in the next show. Thank you very much, John. Say right. good night now. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.